You might have seen the headlines on the recent investigations with Goldman Sachs and Deutsche Bank's asset manager, DWS, BNY Mellon, on the ESG marketing of their funds. But it, it comes to no surprise in the sense that because there's not the, a universal definition and, and ESG can mean different things to different people, there will be this bit of this tension on is it greenwashing, is it a, a PR exercise, or is there real value in having these ESG labels? You're listening to IBKR Podcasts. Find more conversations at ibkrpodcasts.com. Please remember any trading discussions are for information purposes only and are not intended to portray recommendations. Please listen to further disclosures at the end of today's episode. Now, welcome to our show. Hello and welcome to IBKR Podcasts. I'm Stephen Levine, Senior Market Analyst at Interactive Brokers and your host for today's program. I'll be speaking with Cecile Flechten, IBKR Senior Director and Head of ESG and Sustainability, about the attention ESG and sustainability have been getting in the financial services sector, the influence it's had on investing, as well as some of the advancements ESG has been making in the regulatory space and what that means for the investing strategy. So welcome, Cecile. Thanks, Stephen. Great to be here. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Thanks for doing this. ESG and sustainability, at least from my research that led to the educational courses we have on Traders Academy and Coursera, for example, to my mind, it's truly multifaceted, right? It's got a long list of potential benefits, it seems, a lot of uncertainties, a lot of gray areas. So I'm excited to fill some of that in with you here today. And I guess first place to start would be what exactly is ESG? I mean, I understand that it broadly stands for environmental, social, and governance, but I, you know, I posed this question to a number of practitioners. These were portfolio managers, these were analysts, data science professionals, and their definitions, basically, they varied, right? It wasn't one universally accepted standard definition at the time. I don't know if there is one. Is there one? And if there isn't, what risks or benefits do you think can be a consequence of not having one? Thanks, Stephen. That's a very complex question today, and I'll try to do my best to unpack it. So you're right. There's no universal definition of ESG. However, there is more of an alignment of the tenets of ESG, as you cited, environmental, social governance. And that has become an umbrella term, a catch-all phrase, which essentially is a subset of topics that helps define how a business approaches their impact, positive and negative. Yeah. Um, how they interface with society and the environment at large. It uh, also overlays a lot of traditional functions, if you will, such as human resources, the uh, risk management programs, internal audits. There's a whole bunch of overlays of different functions that encompasses the ESG, which has made it very, very confusing. Um, I think originally the impetus around coining an ESG phrase was to help investors capture non-financial, non-traditional financial indicators. And it became this, unfortunately, uh, everything everything catchphrase. And we sort of talked about this, I remember, in terms of the risks that are captured or structured within an ESG framework. And those risks pretty much seem to stand the test of time. I mean, they or they've been around since, I suppose, the dawn of time. So it's, they're really not new risks. If somebody was worried that a chemical company, for example, was going to incur huge litigation charges, for example, from polluting waters, they'd probably want to know or assess the risks that were involved. And would that hurt 
the chemical company's bottom line, I suppose. But ESG and sustainability, this, this runs deeper than that, doesn't it? I mean, there seem to be other kinds of concerns, and I've heard things like values-based investing, impact investing, or other types. There seem to be a lot of different types of investment strategies depending on the investor's own perspective, if you will. But can you color that in for us? I mean, it's ESG a framework that is something apart from or different from values-based investing? Is it presenting different kinds of risks for investors? Yeah, so so great question. And I think you've hit the nail on the head in encapsulating there's there's two different angles when it comes to ESG. So as you mentioned, there's a lot of areas that are traditional, that have been around for a long, long time, really based on risk management. When you think about environmental compliance or safety compliance, yeah. those are areas that um, have been well under play with uh, countries and, and frameworks. So that, that's not new. And a lot of that stemmed from catastrophic events that companies had to evolve from. So when you think about wastewater, stormwater, soil, um, contamination, remediation, you think about safety, um, human rights, th those are all areas that are not new. However, when you think of that values piece that you mentioned, the values yeah. investing, it is taking a look at a different angle on the investment piece and how you bring innovation to not just get rid of inefficiency. So if you think about sustainability in the sense of reducing waste, whether that's emissions, whether that's energy, whether that's water, where you reduce materials and all of that hits your bottom line. It's also thinking about the innovation side and where can you invest to have uh, more profit and, and also yep. do greater good that can be in things like renewable energy or clean technology, better systems um, to help human capital. So there, there is that other side of it that's more on that opportunity side yeah. that's not risk management based. And I know these transitions, even within energy, had such a difficult time trying to remove certain toxins like lead. Trying to remove lead from gasoline was an enormous feat. I think there was a, a gentleman named Claire Patterson who fought for years to try and and lead was in everything. Lead was in paint. It was in your house paint. And kids were... I think, you know, Fuel. getting, yeah, long-term diseases from this and still yet yeah, such a hard time. And it just reminds me of renewables today. And I'm not sure if it's the same kind of exact removal of, of a harmful substance. It sounds like there's a lot of studies and a lot of research that say that traditional energy sources are promoting uh, a lot of harm to the climate, to the planet, to people, maybe in the same ways that lead did in a different way, but, you know, parallel to that. Would you say that that's, that's a fair assessment or are we looking at completely different kinds of transitional periods with respect to energy? I think with respect to energy, there's certainly unintended consequences when you look at new technology that hasn't been tested. And you mentioned lead, which ubiquitously was everywhere. And fortunately, there was a lot of laws that came into place to prevent um, lead contamination, especially to, to children. Yeah. And the way we are going with green technology and renewable energy, it's still evolving and trying to make sure that likewise, the 
environmental impacts are considered when you think about lithium and mining uh, for lithium salts and when you think about the implications of the upstream supply chain with um, solar, for example, that as you have seen probably in the last year, a lot of the exploitation in Xinjiang on um, labor and modern slavery has occurred and has been occurring um, as solar became more predominant for renewable energy. So yes, there's definitely unintended consequences. And what we've learned from growing up through that contamination and environmental compliance and enforcement is you can have, for all good intense purposes, you can have a great innovative product, but you also have to have the right framework to ensure that how you get to that product is done in a credible and um, good manner. I think that as we explore nature-based solutions to solve some of our greatest issues, that is probably where we can find um, a resource to solve issues yet without having those um, lessons learned and corruption and um, abusive or harmful practices. Um, However, I, I do think that we have a long ways to go. And fortunately, we have had a lot of um, trials with different regulatory enforcement and frameworks that we have a better chance of approaching newer technologies in in the right way. Yeah. Things have certainly changed, I would say, since the 19th century or early 20th century. (laughs) Uh, And we do have a lot more exposure don't we, uh, in terms of technology and the keener awareness of what is happening. And if we don't, we have a lot of motivation, it seems, among the investment community for transparency, to want to know and to not be greenwashed, for example, or say that they're going to do something that is positive for certain values that they may hold when they're actually not doing it. So, yeah, I agree. I think that the direction, right, is really going away from corruption and in a better framework or a better light. I mean, those possibilities seem to have more of a spotlight on them. You mentioned two key areas that I think it's important to opine on because it is yeah. the advent of technology, um, the speed of advancement and transparency that has been this catalyst to improve business practices. Um, I grew up through what um, some of us have considered on the what's called the perspective boots to boardroom, where I spent my first 10 years in the field um, doing all kinds of environmental and social field work outside of the office. Oh, wow. And with that, um, as you touched up upon the availability of data and transparency really shaped how businesses reacted. So I'll give an example. When I was based in Southeast Asia, um, doing a lot of social and environmental audits and going to Western corporate companies, yeah. um, their their facilities and factories in places like uh, Myanmar or Malaysia, Philippines, Indonesia, yeah. Thailand, I was very shocked to see the dichotomy of what was presented in their sustainability report versus what was happening on the ground. So I I think certainly the technology piece, social media, being able to have more of a voice um, has accelerated the pace of how fast businesses have to adopt better practices. Surprisingly, there there were countries that despite not having any regulatory um, environmental or social laws that, that actually had really good practices Um, which comes at a big surprise. But I do think that it is important to to think about the 
complex supply chains, where there's resources and what kind of markets can develop, say, for example, if you move away from polysilicon in northwest China and Xinjiang, and you look for that resource in another place, um, there's, there's still a lot of heavy infrastructure that goes into, you're essentially turning sand into glass into the, in the solar um, industry. Yeah. And with the solar industry, there's already supply chain. If you're ordering panels in the U.S., a lot of that um, manufacturing, not the upstream, but a lot of the manufacturing of the panels already occurs in Southeast Asia. Yeah. That's only yeah. if you're delivering to the U.S. The supply chain for Europe and Asia for for solar is is very, very different and won't follow the same process that, that happens for delivery into the U.S. But I, I do believe that where there's risk, there's certainly opportunity. It's just that natural resources is, is very difficult in building that infrastructure yeah. around. So cooperation of the governments, having the right regulatory um, policies, and then also having the right incentives for private investment to to help um, tackle some of these issues is very important. It sounds like a huge shift as well in terms of, I suppose, international affairs or, or political alignments. I mean, if our infrastructure in terms of our energy is going to be reliant in some huge way on solar and that solar is being produced in another country or dependent on or reliant on another country, then I suppose our entire economic well-being is tethered to our relations with that country, or would have to be. Yeah, I think with the trade agreements, certainly. And it's also um, trying to understand the, you know, the, the debt markets, uh, project financing, and with that comes the sustainable development around these larger um, projects and investments. Yep. So I think that's important in, in Asia in particular. Um, I do have to say they, they have done a good job when you think back to how sustainable banking came into play through Equator principles back in 2010 and following through on IFC performance standards, which essentially is a, a high standard for doing um, larger capital intensive projects. Yep. So yep. I think there, there's quite a lot of lessons learned that Western societies can learn from, from Asia when you think about some of the ways that they've evolved in creating frameworks around environmental and social issues. And we need to continue to take those lessons learned and develop the right policies. It's funny that you mentioned these debt-financed projects because there's, I mean, there's a whole now slew of bonds and fixed income products that are focused on ESG-related concerns. There's, there's social bonds. Green bonds have been a huge thing for, for some time now, but also sustainability-linked bonds and sustainability bonds. And I understand that there's a difference between those two. There's gender bonds. There's a, a whole spectrum of different kinds of projects that are being financed within this framework. There have been questions about it because there's no formal regulatory policy around the proceeds being used from these projects. You know, you can say it's a green bond, for example, and it abides by certain rules or guidelines, but not regulatory, right? It's not, there's no law that, that right. dictates them. But also they're really unprecedented in terms of the projects that they're aiming to achieve to do. I mean, entire, say, infrastructure of a public transport system to go green, for example, in Germany. And so Germany, say, would have a great deal of green bonds from their government to fund their federal railway. But then there's also like social bonds that are, you know, meant to do, say, certain social projects. 
that rely on the revenues to pay back the, the bondholders. I mean, so the bondholders buy these, they have to get their debt service paid. And usually with a revenue bond, there's all sorts of feasibility studies. But these sound like certain unprecedented types of projects. So how can you really be sure, one, that, yeah, they're not being greenwashed, and two, that they're able to actually produce that revenue to pay back these bondholders? I mean, if, if that's something you know we could dive into. Yeah, that's a great question. And we're talking about here the social projects um, funded with debt, such as um, ones that are related to affordable housing, for example, or yeah. food security or socioeconomic advancement. You mentioned gender, affordable and basic infrastructure, schools, roads, hospitals, um, R&D projects. And fortunately, there, although there's not a lot of regulation, there are standards for social bonds such as the International Capital uh, Market Association, yep. so ICMA. They've set voluntary guidelines for transparency and unified reporting. Um, they have environmental obje objectives, and they also created um, some framework around estimating impact. It's important to note that these the sustainable bond market obviously is still a fraction of the broader fixed income market. And um, clearly, yep. these investments carry more liquidity risk and over-concentration risk to certain issuers, whether that's in different sectors or regions. So I believe it is very important to have sophisticated um, asset managers, investment managers that are equipped and experienced in managing these risks and um, obviously yep. to target risk-adjusted returns. I mentioned earlier, and, and this is where it's important to look at um, what's been done in the past because... There's a very uh, similar common um, ground here when you think about um, international project financing. And that's where um, equator principles came into play because it was for the same reasons. Where do you have these big capital intensive projects that you rely on future revenues to pay back these giant loans? Yeah. Um, so to answer your question on, you know, how do you how do you know that these the money is being used for these projects and there is a good framework and and that does speak to the experience of those investment managers but using the framework that's already been developed in for example in equator principles there is a requirement to have independent environmental and social audits that are done um, not by who the sponsor of the project not their consultant but to have an actual separate independent right. engineer and an independent um, environmental and social uh, specialists come and do audits. They, they also require environmental and social management systems. So where you have those investment firms that have that background and knowledge, they will have that understanding on, on how to create the right framework to, to have the checks and balances to ensure that that money is being used for the right purpose. It's great to know that there is some sound uh, framework. Uh, or community, I suppose, that is governing the project at hand and making sure that it is doing what it's, you know, they say that they're going to do, that they're following through on the basic vision of it. There has been a lot of controversy, though, hasn't there, about ESG investing, you know, that the strategy itself is a form of greenwashing. What do you say to people who might be swayed into believing that, yeah, that might be the case? I think this has been a, a pivotal year um, for ESG investing because there's been a lot of controversy and there's also been a lot of confusion on 
the um, definitions, the ratings. You might have seen the headlines on the recent investigations with Goldman Sachs and yep. Deutsche Bank's asset manager, DWS, BNY yep. Mellon, on the ESG marketing of their funds. But it, it comes to no surprise in the sense that because there's not the, a universal definition and, and ESG can mean different things to different people, there will be this bit of this tension on is it greenwashing, is it a, a PR exercise, or is there real value in having these ESG labels? So I, I'm a bit ambivalent in the sense that I do believe that there is merit to focusing on that sustainability piece and essentially creating the right approach on on how you do um, sustainable investing. It's two different things where the how is doing it in the, the right framework and the, the actual outcome, whether that's the product or the service, is sustainable in, in that definition. And, and it is, again, very, very confusing. So unfortunately, there, there will continue to be some risk of greenwashing. But the good news today is that there's a lot of attention, a lot of focus, a lot of new regulations, a lot of areas where reporting and disclosure is becoming more pronounced than ever before. Yeah, yeah. And the rules on that reporting and disclosure, I suppose that they've got internal policies as well that are being governed to determine on their end that what they're reporting and disclosing is accurate. <laughs> I guess yeah, there's some I, penalties I think so. for that. I think or, that's accurate. And yeah. it's also, I think, in the US, it has become very uh, politicized. And we're in our election season. There's a whole bunch yeah. of um, consternation around the, the different um, views, and um, it's unfortunately created uh, a whole nother level of um, attention on ESG with you know, what was intentionally meant to be um, trying to advance uh, areas that we traditionally didn't really think about or consider yeah. in business yeah. strategy. It also seems to get tied into just very negative things, unfortunately, it seems. Climate activists, for example, and, and throwing paint at paintings. And it just, it seems like people who might consider ESG might think, oh, this is just in the same camp as what those people are doing in those museums, or that's a reflection of it. But there is a very distinct boundary or parameter for investors to look at ESG as a framework for transitioning. And I suppose the risks and benefits in there are how are these companies that they're invested in transitioning in ways that will benefit the company and also the ecosystem in which they operate. So a sort of societal impact in the long term. So investors are not only investing in the company and in their well-being financially for the company, but the financial well-being for the entire uh, ecosystem and community in which uh, they thrive. Yeah, I, I believe so. And and if you look at just some of the, the sheer numbers that are out there, when you think about investing in where you have climate change impact and looking at those new technologies, the um, Net Zero Alliance, for example, those Net Zero Asset Managers, that's some $66 trillion in assets under management, yeah. um, over 290 asset managers there. And oh, yeah. so I think that's that's very significant, and and it does. Number one, there there's a lot of investment opportunity there, and number two, it's also um, the the ESG aspects speak to again good controls, having the right framework, um, management systems. Yeah. So I, I think that that's important to highlight is there there's still a lot of positives, and when you consider the ESG investing side of things. 
And you did mention earlier about reporting and transparency and regulations. And so, you know, I'd be really keen to know, it's been some time, what are regulators doing today that makes you optimistic about advancing ESG into a more formalized strategy that people can feel more, say, comfortable with? I think there's two parts to that question. And there, there's a lot of emphasis now on disclosures and reporting and having a bit more consistency in reporting. The EU right now is leading and coming out with all kinds of directives. And they've worked on the last few years, the Sustainable Finance Reporting Directive. Just this week, um, the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive passed. There's taxonomy law. TCFD, the Task Force on Climate-Related Disclosures, yeah. and the SEC's Rule on Climate Disclosure Rules, which is is proposed now and, and should finalize. So I think there there is a lot of the input-based reporting mandates. I think that that is important to, to set some standards, um, a bit of the consolidation to get rid of inconsistency. So yeah. it's great to see what's happening with IFRS which has um, two sustainability reporting boards um, now. And it's also, you know, if you think about the UK, their financial conduct authority yep. has a proposal to introduce investment product sustainability labels, yep. which is very important. But it, if I have to fast forward and think about what would be even more effective yeah. is maybe not so much the the input and the disclosure-related piece. I, I, it is good to have that. Don't get me wrong. But I would like to see more outcome-based regulatory policies, like really driving the outcome side. So I just moved from California, and there is a lot of policies around pushing consumers into the direction of clean technology. Yes. And just with, you know, the, for example, having cars that are no longer using traditional combustion. So I think that there, right now, it is um, focused on disclosures and, and enforcement and attention on disclosures, input-based, mm -hmm. but hopefully in the future, it'll be more of that outcome-based. What do you think is hampering that approach to outcome-based policy? Are you thinking that maybe it's maybe there's a cautionary tale to be had here and not to go too far to push an outcome? Is there just too much resistance to that? Do you think? I guess from a political will, or even among the people who uh, you know would be making the decision as to phasing out all combustion engine vehicles and and only having electric cars to choose from. I think it touches up on what we talked about earlier and some of the newer technologies. It's the unintended consequences aren't known yet. Yes. So having that infrastructure, having the right resources to mine from is, is still pretty nascent. And if you push an outcome-based, you, you certainly have to understand what those unintended consequences could be and is society ready for that. Yeah. So I like think that's- UFOs, you know. <laughs> they, they kept that under wraps for so long and I, they just can't do it anymore, right? Nobody seems shocked. It's amazing, right? <laughs> I, I think there's intelligent life. The fact that they haven't reached out to us means there is intelligent life out there. No, it's really interesting. And it's really great. And and you did mention that you can see regulations perhaps unfolding and maybe in the same way, or maybe Europe is an indication of what we might expect here in terms of advancements in the space of ESG. But let's let's look five, 10 years from now. So investors who are really interested in this and are wondering, 
whether they should stay in this ESG space and, and continue to make their, say, fundamental assessments based within an ESG framework, or even technical now, I suppose, because there's a lot of data that can be used to determine certain signals as to whether a company is meeting values, for example, that they hold, or getting too much negative attention one way or another. But what does it look like in five, 10 years in your view? I mean, what kind of environment is being marketed, for example, when people hear about ESG investing or sustainability? What, what do you think is going to, to be the landscape? We've seen from all of the different ESG dimensions, I think we've had a really eye-opening year thinking about you know, what we're going through and so far as climate breakdown, for example. Yeah. There's probably... Every continent now has seen some kind of climate disaster, whether it be flooding or the severe uh, wildfires. So I, I think that's on the east side of the equation. I think it's pretty united now compared to previous years and looking forward and, and five years coming out the gates now, actually this week out of COP27 in Egypt, there there is strong emphasis on looking at that, the, the climate change piece, looking specifically at loss and damage, how to deal with that, trying to accelerate private finance, get a lot of the emerging markets yeah. on board and setting up their policies, having the right standards for disaster mitigation when it comes to insurance. Yeah. So I think that's that train is, is well underway. I think for on the S side, I think that's that one's a little bit more complicated. There, there's certainly human rights issues that are coming out now from you know, just even the U.S.'s pull out of Afghanistan, the, what's happening with the war in the Ukraine, looking at the issues now in, in Haiti. Yeah. So th there, there's a lot, of, a lot of dislocation and transmigration of people. Just a few days ago, we hit 8 billion in the world population. Yeah, I saw that. So we have to think strongly about the innovation around food security, yep. not just looking at climate, but also what, you know, you did a, a, a spot on the food, bioengineering Bio food, food that's and right. that's, yeah. that's become yeah. very, very important. So, 10, 10, 10 billion people by 2050, I understand, or some something in that ballpark. That's right. That's right. And India surpassing China soon. In that podcast, we talked about food insecurity in areas where we have enough food to actually feed certain populations, but we can't get the food to them, That's right? right? You know, there are all sorts of issues there. There's economic turmoil. There's all sorts of uh, barriers that just prevent a box from going over a border. There's corruption issues. Yeah. I mean, we had a food for oil program many years ago in the Middle East that, that didn't work. Um, yeah, I remember that, yeah. So I, I think there, there's certainly a lot of complex issues when it comes to the S side of things. There's also, you know, when we think about the human capital side, it's it's not only thinking about benefits and how to promote diversity and looking at pay gap. It's also understanding coming out of the pandemic and, and many, many years from now, the mental health issues and yeah. the medical benefits. You know, how does that work? So many complex issues just over the span over the next few years. I think it'll it'll look very differently. Hopefully, in ten years, I'm a bit more hopeful. <laughs> but I think for the next five years, it's it's going to be 
uh, a bit of a tumultuous time yeah. in the sustainability yeah. space. But there must be certain businesses or industries within this environment that are going to be unrecognizable, I, I can imagine, over the course of five, 10 years as these changes are taking place. I don't know what that'll be. I know you're talking about outcome-driven types of policy, like say in California and electric vehicles, for example. You know, the auto industry then is bound to face some completely different product lines, right? And the way that they manufacture these vehicles are, go are, are going to involve ecosystems that are going to be completely different as well. Recycling the batteries, for example, we could do that. We, we have grid storage. We need to have all this electricity somehow stored in a place where it can be accessed and used and centralized and protected, right? So there's a lot, a lot of things that get tied together. And for investors looking at these transitions, they do need to rely on some kind of source right, that guides them through all of the changes that are taking place. I mean, is, do you think that there's a there's really a place for them to go? I didn't mean, come here, right? We've got great <laughs> research, but uh, what, do you, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good point. I think certainly there's a lot of industry industries that have been forced to transform. Will they be unrecognizable in 10 years? I'm not sure. I, I do think that there's a lot of opportunity and we're starting to see that transition with oil and gas industry and how much CapEx they put into renewable energy, for yeah. example. And I think that when we think about the other areas such as agriculture and methane emissions, there, there's a lot of innovative investments that are going into the agricultural space. And that's tied to to having that food security. Yep. But yep. you know, it, it will continu continuously be dependent on how fast countries collaborate and work together to have more of that unification to solve some of these issues. Um, the I think the the airline and transport industry will will look different, very very different as as they start to look at more of the innovative technologies. Um, yeah. I'm I'm personally hoping to see more aerial taxis when we think about how drones have evolved and we can get, you know <laughs> anything to get out of the New York City uh, congestion that would be great that would beat a lot of congestion costs too I think taxis are raising their prices now for rush hour traffic so yes yes that's an outcome based policy I would definitely vote for <laughs> that's right that's right so I think there's some exciting times when you think about ten years from now. I think that we'll see what happens in the next five years. It's it's very interesting to hear what will come out from COP27. There's now a big, big focus on um, nature-based solutions. So yeah. I think that's also very exciting. I think there's other industries that also need to advance, especially when you think about specialty chemicals and what that has to do for circular economy. Yeah. Those are those are emerging areas and um, full of full of investment opportunity. That's awesome. That's great. I mean, this has been really, really great. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to inform people about ESG and sustainability from from your journey through ESG and sustainability, or anything else you'd like to add? I'm hoping that in a few years we no longer will be so focused on that term ESG. I'm, I'm hoping that it will be integrated. It's it's not its own separate identity. And um, sustainability is, is also likewise is just regular BAU and is integrated into how businesses think about their success and their yeah. profit and their future. Because I, I think un unnecessarily ESG has been this focus of controversy when it doesn't have to be. And, and 
setting aside all the the differences and the confusion, I think the it's coming from a good place and and yeah. trying to essentially bring more impact to society mm. and also help solve some of the the biggest problems that we face. It sounds really ideal. I mean, really, it sounds to me, and I could be wrong here, but it sounds like it's evolving towards a common sense approach to doing business that has a benefit for everyone in mind and that actually delivers and follows through on that benefit. I agree. Yeah, it's really terrific. Cecile, thank you again for taking the time to do this. I think this was really fascinating. Thanks, right. Stephen. My pleasure. You can learn more market commentary, analysis, and insights about ESG and sustainability at IBKR Traders Insight at tradersinsight.news. Lots of fascinating articles there that delve into a wide range of information. We also have courses on Traders Academy, as well as through Coursera, as we mentioned. Also check out our webinars at ibcarewebinars.com. And for those interested in making trading decisions aligned with your values, IBCare offers the Impact app. And there's more details about that and other material in the notes of this podcast at ibcarepodcasts.com. And until next time, I'm Stephen Levine for Interactive Brokers. Thanks for listening to IBKR Podcasts. As always, we have more episodes at ibkrpodcasts.com. And if you're interested in learning more about interactive brokers, visit ibkr.com. We offer more trading education material, such as webinars at ibkrwebinars.com, financial and economic commentary at tradersinsight.news, market-related courses at tradersacademy.online, and quant-related articles at ibkrquant.com. The analysis in this material is provided for information only and is not and should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security. To the extent that this material discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic or political conditions, it should not be construed as research or investment advice. To the extent that it includes references to specific securities, commodities, currencies, or other instruments, those references do not constitute a recommendation by IBKR to buy, sell, or hold such investments. The material does not and is not intended to take into account the particular financial conditions, investment objectives, or requirements of individual customers. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and, as necessary, seek professional advice. Futures are not suitable for all investors. The amount you may lose may be greater than your initial investment. Before trading futures, please read the CFTC Risk Disclosure. A copy and additional information are available at ibkr.com.